coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Curtis. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. You guys know the drill. I'm Tyler, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Curtis. And today on the podcast, we're going to do our best to catch up on at least some of the mailbag questions that you guys have been sending in since the end of the 2020 football season. We were actually scheduled to do our 2020 postseason award show today. We were all ready to get that done, but... We realize like we've got a pretty long list of questions at this point that we have been building, and we want to kind of try to start to put a little bit of a dent in that list. So we are just going to push the award show back to next week. I promise we'll get to that. But today we're going to try to put a little bit of a dent into this list of mailbag questions. And we encourage you guys, still, we encourage you to send us any questions you have at any time during this football offseason. We're switching things up a little bit this offseason rather than hold all the questions for one big end-of-the-month mailbag show like we've done traditionally. We're just going to kind of intersperse them. Like, we just started to get so many questions, it's hard to put them on just one mailbag show at the end of the month. We find ourselves leaving questions out, and I hate doing that. We love all you guys. We want to make sure we give each question the attention it deserves. So what we're going to try to do is kind of just intersperse those questions on various episodes throughout the entire offseason. So that way you guys don't have to wait as long to get the answers to your questions and that we can also make sure that we answer all the questions that are sent in at some point. So as soon as a question comes to mind, send them over to us. You can hit us up on Twitter. That's at glory underscore UGA. You can tweet them to us. You can DM us, whatever works for you guys. Or if email is more your style, you can email us at gloryugapodcast at gmail.com. And we are, guys. We're just kind of adding them to the list. And uh, yeah, like we're trying to get the more like topical questions first. But just because we don't answer your question right away, I promise you we are not forgetting about you. It doesn't mean that at all. We will get to all the questions here as soon as we possibly can. Just be patient with us. I promise we will get to your questions. So yeah, keep sending those in to us. Um, I also want to take a quick minute or two here before we get to the questions just to give a few shout outs to some of our loyal listeners for some of the the recent five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. You guys don't know how much that really helps us. I really believe that's a big part of how this show has grown over the past couple years. So today we've got SGDog77, Dad, Freebie Dweeby, my personal favorite name, uh, All Dog, and then Downs 99891 All of them have written some really nice reviews of the podcast over the last month or so. I don't, know, I don't know exactly when they were written because Apple Podcast kind of takes a, a little while to, I guess, to approve those messages or to, to approve those reviews and have them actually posted. But I guess those have been written over the past month or so, I would say. And so I just want to directly thank each of you guys who have taken the time to do that. We are extremely humbled by and grateful for that support. We really are. And I've also, I got to say this too, I've also gotten some feedback from some of our listeners who listen to us on other platforms outside of Apple Podcasts. I know most of you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, but there are others out there. There's some Stitcher people. There's uh, some Spotify folks out there. We love you guys too. And I know they don't really always give you an option to rate or review the show. And I just want to make sure all of you guys, wherever you listen to us, however you access the show, I want to make sure that you know that we appreciate your support too. Word of mouth, just spreading the word. That's a huge help too, guys. So thank you for that. We really do appreciate that as well. Basically, thank you all around. Um, and it's, it's crazy, guys. Like, I just can't, like, it's, it is crazy. Like, th- despite the pandemic, this was somehow, I don't know how, but somehow the best year in the six year history of this podcast. And, and like, yeah, sure. 
like Charlie, Curtis, and I, like we work hard to bring you guys our brand of content. Like we do, we, we put a lot of time and effort into it for sure. But whatever, I mean, the success of this podcast, however modest that may be, is really due to all of you guys. The fact that this podcast exists is because of you. So thank you guys. You know we love you. Um, and let's just keep it rolling. But all right, Curtis, we've got a ton of great questions to get to today. And a couple of these probably warrant some in-depth discussions. So let's go ahead and jump right in. And this first question, I love this first question. It's a great one to start off with. Uh, this is, uh, it's kind of, it's a totally a big picture question. This is one of those questions that's going to take us a little bit more time to kind of really dig into. And this is from our good friend, Cliff. Always appreciate it, Cliff. Cliff asks, what grade would you give Coach Kirby Smart over his first five years in Athens as a head coach? in terms of grades in recruiting, development of players, and in-game decisions and strategy. And Curtis, I think this question, because I, I, actually I know it was, as he sent me a screenshot, uh, but this comes from, I think the impetus for this question of Cliff's was a tweet from Peter Burns, SEC Network's Peter Burns. I'm sure you guys know who he is. Uh, and I, I'm pulling up the tweet right here. And what Peter Burns said was in his tweet, there have been 221 coaches in the FBS since Kirby Smart started at Georgia. Here's a list of coaches that have 50 wins, a conference championship, and played for a national title since that time. Nick Saban, Dabo Swinney, and you guessed it, our guy, Kirby Smart. That's three guys. Three guys out of 221 since Kirby took the job here in Athens. And so what Peter Burns said is that this, quote, Kirby can't coach narrative is lazy. And I'm really glad that we got Peter Burns on this now because I've been talking about this for a couple of years now, especially this offseason in comparison, like especially when it comes to Dan Mullen versus Kirby Smart. This idea that Kirby can't coach is a ridiculous narrative. It's a lazy, terrible take. So, Kurt, I want to get your thoughts on this question from Cliff. How would you personally grade Kirby Smart overall in his first five years as head coach and, and like maybe even more specifically in recruiting development in-game decisions those kind of things um overall I'll probably go with a minus um I honestly believe that he has done a better job than most people want to give him credit for because you know people always go to that lazy narrative of comparing him to the first five years of Mark Rick and that narrative drives me absolutely crazy because Mark Rick was not fired for his first five years. On his first five years, he was on a path to become, you know, an you know one of the all-time legend coaches. He was fired. Then, he, the conversation was: it's just a matter of when Mark Rick wins was not if it's when, and it, the win never happened. Exactly, and he, you know, the last five years he started dropping off heavily, and that's the thing: you're not really seeing a drop off in what Kirby Smart does. It almost makes him more hungry. Um, the one, you know, recruiting always has been a you know, A for him. I mean, that's where he prides himself truly is in recruiting. Um, Yeah, exactly. He has taken us to new heights um, realistically. And that's even with the transfer portal and things like that, where we're losing star players and still putting together a strong team Um, development. People never want to give him credit, but some of his best jobs in development. I mean, Roquan was a, a great talent, but he didn't take off truly till his second year under Kirby. And you saw it for a lot of guys. These guys have been developing DeAndre Baker, um, you know, he ended up developing really strongly under him. Look at Eric Stokes, who went from everyone was like, why did we even take this guy? Did we just waste a scholarship to he was an All-American this past year and did really well. Tay Crowder came to Georgia as a running back. Yeah, he was Mr. Irrelevant in that last pick, but he got drafted, which is still difficult in his own right. And not only that, but he turns around and puts together a pretty decent season. Not only, he, he makes starts, the roster. He with the Giants. Even, he the yeah, he ends up starting. Down. Exactly. And I mean, and he made some memorable plays and that's the thing, like 
people that just want to give him the argument he can't develop players is a lazy argument in its own right because people argue you can't develop players when you're recruiting five stars because well you don't really have to develop them that's not always true because as we see rankings can be deceptive look at Nate McBride and even Demetrius Robertson um you know just because they were high high rated guys doesn't mean that they still can't develop or take their game to the next level and then lastly in-game coaching I believe he is starting to actually get better um you know a lot of the times we question his timeouts his game management and certain things in the first couple of years but i feel like he has gotten better you know we question um a lot of people did question the timeout before the punt in the cincinnati game but yeah that one may have been a little head scratcher but overall his in-game strategy when he's using his timeouts he's not wasting things as much and i think he's overall becoming a better coach and learning more people like people were really harsh on him to the point like I mean even us question his game management but the thing is the guy would have never been a head coach before so he was still going to go through a learning curve in his own right because Nick Saban made a lot of those big decisions timeouts and things like that so you can't expect a coach to step in right away and be an A plus in game management I totally agree man I, I that's a great breakdown I love everything you said there I mean you're I mean most of my thoughts would echo a lot of what you said I'm just going to add a, a couple more things onto this and I, I'd love for you to get throw your feedback in as well to what I've got here uh, I think in a lot of ways, how people view Kirby Smart right now going into year six after five years, I I think in a lot of ways, and tell me if you think I'm crazy, I think he is a victim of his own success in a lot of ways. Is, is that fair to say? I think it's very fair to say because, you know, in year two, he takes us to the natty. And, yeah. you know, we've been so close lately and we've had some tough losses, which are hard to explain. And, you know, you see people like Justin Fields going and having a good career and everyone wants to look back with hindsight, but that's so easy. Yeah, I, exactly. Like when you have like we know year one was a transition year. That was clear. You know what? We ended up going eight and five that year in 2016. But 2017, he then takes us to the heights of all heights, almost the heights of all heights, as, as high as we've been since 1980 to overtime of the national championship game, a game that we led for much of that game. I mean, almost the entire first half. We were right there to a national title. And then, then of course, it's like, okay, Georgia's going to win next year and then the next year. So I think when you have that kind of success that early for a fan base that is as hungry for a national title as we are, I think in some ways he's a victim of his own success. Because after you do that in year two, where do you go? The only, the only up from there is to actually win it. Anything, anything less than winning it is considered a disappointment now based off what he did in year two. And I don't, and look, I want us to have those kind of expectations as a program. I think that we are that kind of program. We should have high expectations for our program. But we also have to, on some level, not be entirely delusional. We, we give other programs – we have a question about Tennessee here in a little bit and talk about delusional programs. That's a delusional fan base. But, I mean, all fan, all fan bases are – they have their fair share of delusion. But we also – like, we need to be realistic here as well. And I do think realistic for us should be competing for SEC titles and national titles and playoff bursts year after year. I do believe that. But does that mean that we're going to win the national title every year? Because it's almost like if we don't win it, it's a disappointment. And, again, on, on some level, that's, that's a good for your program to be in that spot where you should be winning at a high level. But let's also go back and look at, I think, the three coaches of the past 10 years or so that I think universally we consider the, the three best coaches in college football over the past three years. I would say Nick Saban, Urban Meyer, and Dabo Swinney. Is that about right, Curtis? Yeah, I believe, in yeah, my opinion, yeah. Guys? Okay. Well, it, do, Kurt, do you have any idea how long it took Nick Saban to win his first national title? 
I want to say like 20 years. No, it didn't take him 20 years. I wish it was that long because it would make my point even stronger. But nine it years. It just felt right? like it. But Yeah, it, it felt like say, yeah. So it. It took him a while. Thing, and then he has to build up LSU for a couple years. And in year nine of Nick Saban's career as a head football coach at the FBS level, he won national title. Urban Meyer did a little quicker. He started at Bowling Green, then goes to Utah for a couple years, then comes to Florida, and he wins a national title in year six as head coach. Hey, Kirby Smart's going to year six. Who knows? Maybe it's the year. Uh, and then Dabo Swinney, year eight at Clemson. Year eight of being an FBS head coach. Dabo's probably the closest to Kirby in terms of like when he took over our job. Like, like Kirby, Dabo had no head coaching experience previously. Now, Kirby well, had also, been- when you look at – Go ahead. When you look at Dabo, too, I mean, Dabo, had, before he won a national championship, had a history, I mean, of Clemsoning. That was their thing. Like, everyone yeah. knew Clemsoning. You go up and give up 70-something points in a bowl game to West Virginia. That Kirby murdered. Smart's never had that. No. Like, even the game, like, like the only time we've really, like, okay, we got blown out in the SEC title game last year because, I mean, LSU was a generationally good team. And also, we were just the walking winner. We were just devastated from an injury standpoint in that game. And we just, we weren't, we weren't, we weren't going to have a chance in that game. But really, since year one, we haven't had a ton of those massive, like, kind of blowout games. That's, that's a good point. Um, we've been like, some of the games that we've lost have been most disappointing. The SEC title game in 2018, the national title game. Like, we were literally right there. The game, those are games that we should have won. I think that's maybe one of the reasons Kirby gets a bad rap is because those games we had the lead in. And we should have won those games. And then something happened down the stretch in different things in different games. And we end up losing those games, um, which I, I think that – and when it's on, on a big stage like that, when a lot of eyes are on the game, that's, that brings the casual fans. And that's, the, that's who creates narratives, these media members who don't watch every game. In fact, I, like I would argue – like, Yeah, I watch 75% more games than your average media member. Uh, but whatever. But they watch those games. Casual fans watch games of national title, the SEC championship game, and that's how narratives get started because they say, "Oh, that's what Kirby Smith will have from Kirby Smart. He just he can't get over the he can't get over the hump." And it's like, dude, he's been a head coach for five years. Would I would I wish we would have won those games? Yeah, of course, I wish we would have. Are there some things that he could he could have done differently in those games to help us win? Yeah, probably. But it also took Nick Saban nine years, guys. And by the way, when Nick Saban, when he was trying to win a national title, he didn't have Nick Saban to crawl over. You know what I mean, Curtis? Like Kirby has to get over. He has the hump he's trying to he's trying to surpass here and get over is the greatest college football coach in the history of the sport in his own conference. Nick Saban did not have to overcome Nick Saban to get where he is. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, at that time, realistically, the Pete Carroll hadn't even become Pete Carroll because he didn't have Matt Leiner in them yet at that time, I believe. Yeah. So there was no coach that everyone was trying to catch and it's in not, that and period. And USC was not in the SEC. Like, he had a clear path to the SEC championship. For, and and I, see, I that's the thing, too. Like, nowadays, nowadays, you see people talking up Lincoln Riley left and right, you know, that he's the next hot shot. But he's in a conference that doesn't have a Nick Saban. I mean, literally, the, his only competition just got fired for underperforming. I think one of the reasons Dabo Swinney has become Dabo Swinney is because there's no Dabo Swinney or Nick Saban in his conference. Now, yes, he's had to match up against Nick Saban in the in the in the playoffs and, and has won a couple of times, but he's also gotten beat a bunch of times as well. And would, would Dabo Swinney be who Dabo Swinney is? Would Clemson be what Clemson is today if they had an Alabama in their own conference when they didn't have this just clear path to the playoff every single year? I I I think there's a strong argument that you could say no. I think would they still be really good? Yeah. But would they be more like a Georgia? Like if Clemson was in 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 uh in the SEC the past ten years would they be more like a Georgia has been the past couple of years or would they be the same as what they have been now they have they've had elite quarterbacks I'll give them that.
But still, the fact is, Kirby has to overcome the greatest coach in college ball history. And that's something that all these other coaches never had to do, including Nick Saban himself. So I just want to put that in context there. Uh, now, in terms of what going through what you were saying there, Curtis, recruiting, I think it's an A+. If you look at the 247 composite talent team talent rankings, we had the number one most talented roster in all of America this season. I think, was it last year as well? We were either number one or two last year. But this in 2020, we were the, had the number one most talented roster in America. And every one of those players – where Kirby Smart recruits. He's got he's now been here long enough to recruit those players and he's done an incredible job. There's literally been no better recruiter in America over the past four or five years than Kirby Smart. Nick Saban's done a great job. Dabo's done a great job. There's a lot of great recruiters out there. They ain't Kirby Smart. They're not recruiting at quite as well as he has over the last four or five years. Will that continue? I think so. I mean, like, have we seen any sign of really slowing down? I don't, I haven't seen any signs of that. Um, development, you nailed it on development, Curtis. Like that's that's probably the argument that the that I think is the laziest, this idea that Kirby just can't develop talent. I don't know where that narrative is. I think it's come from the fact that, like, well, Georgia recruits at such a high level. They, they always say these number one recruiting classes, but we haven't won a national title yet. And that's a very, very, very lazy narrative because all you're saying is, well, you recruit really well, but you haven't won the national title. You're not actually looking at specific examples here. And you mentioned them, Eric Stokes, DeAndre Baker, Tay Crowder. I would say, like, Brian Harrion. Uh, remember, nobody wanted Brian Harrion. Like, we we waited on Harrion to 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 qualify, and he comes in. Now Harrion wasn't a superstar, but he was a he was a major contributor his senior year, contributor for most of his time in Athens. J.R. Reed, all American. We took J.R. Reed as a throw in to get D'Angelo Gibbs, and we developed him. And he did he, he worked hard. He does a lot of credit himself. But we developed that dude into an all American. J.R. Reed became an all American. Jordan Davis was a three-star nobody recruit from North Carolina. And this guy, I, I think, is probably the best interior defensive lineman coming back in America next year. I think he at least make that argument. Even a guy I know you don't love him, Curtis, but Justin Schaefer, a three-star recruit from Cedar Grove, is now, is now going to be a multi-year starter more than likely. Don't tell me Kirby Smart can't develop talent. Is there going to be a Nate McBride here and there? Yeah, sure, it's going to happen. But let's not act like that's unique to Kirby Smart. That happens to every coach. How many players tra- that are highly, recruit- highly recruited transfer out of Alabama because they can't make the cut? It happens. So if you well, say think about, Smart, think about Ben Davis, who everyone yeah. wanted, at, um, who ended up going to Alabama. The guy has played sparingly in his whole career. Yeah, there's a number of guys. I mean, the, uh, there's a number of guys for Alabama and LSU and all these other programs that recruit really well. We, this, this, that's what recruiting is. Like sometimes you recruit a really highly rated guy, but then you know what? Then you recruit another highly rated guy next the next year, and they compete with each other. And one of those guys will win the job, and one of the guys is not going to win the job. And the guy that doesn't win the job since he was a five star guy, thinks the world of himself, he's probably going to transfer out. It happens, all right. It simply happens. And so I'm not saying it hasn't happened with Kirby Smart. I'm not saying there are some guys that I wish we would have developed a little bit better. But all I'm saying is like it's not unique to Kirby Smart. Let's not act like this is a Kirby Smart problem. I think that's that's what really irks me. Is people act like this is a this is unique to Kirby Smart. It's a Kirby Smart thing and never happens anywhere else. That's just crazy. It's just lazy. It's just lazy. Uh, when it comes to strategy, I'm going to bring this down to defensive and offensive strategy. I would say I'm giving him an A for defensive strategy. I, I think some of the things that we do from a schematic standpoint with a lot of our simulated pressure, which has really become all the rage in college football, even you see in the NFL now, I think Kirby Smart was one of the forerunners of the simulated pressure looks that you'll see where people call it a blitz, but it's not really a blitz. We're only bringing four guys, but you just don't know where those four guys were coming from. He gives you a lot of different looks doing that. He's done a great job with that. The pattern match stuff goes, I mean, that's, that's a largely saving stuff as well, but we've done a lot of different things schematically with our mint front, 
uh, which is basically a tight front that we've done with, with our defense strategy that's really been effective and a big reason why we've been so dominant defensively for a couple of years now. Offensive strategy, Curtis, uh, different story. What great – I'm curious your take here. Because I know Kirby's not an offensive guy, but he's the head coach, and he kind of sets the the – I guess that's the table for what kind of offensive scheme he wants the, the coordinator to run. What would you give him in terms of what our offense has been his first five years? Um, I'd go the C plus. Um, but I also think this narrative is a little lazy in its own right. Um, Cause everyone's like, well, look what Nick Saban's done. He's transformed his offense. Kirby's just behind the eight ball, you know, always being late trying to change his offense. How long did it take Saban before he went to a spread offense? What 20 years in the finding of Tua? realistically i mean that's the thing like the guy in his own right has to learn his own identity people you know i just hate that narrative everyone wants to look at nick saban look what they're doing it took him 20 something years to get to that point to make a change where forever he was a ground and pound pro style i'll run it down your throat and win with great defense i agree and And at least kirby is willing to make the change yeah and he made the change like I, and I'm not saying that I love what our offense was for the first four years. I, especially in 28, 2019, absolutely not. We, I wish he would have changed a little earlier. I honestly think if Justin Fields would have won the job in 2018, that our offense would have transformed quicker. But in that season, I know I don't want to rehash the Fields from debate here, but just, I mean, I, I think that from in Kirby's eyes, and you, you can criticize Kirby for saying that Fields should have. And let's be real. The whole Fields thing is a big reason why Kirby gets this knock of not being a great coach anyway, right? That's a, that's a big part of this on a national scale. But I, I think for what – and you can criticize him for that, but I think our coaching staff decided that Jake Fromm was the best option for 2018. I personally agree with him that year. I think if Fields would have stayed, he would have won the job in 2019, but he chose to leave. And, and good for him. He, he made his decision and whatever. But I think if he would have won that job with his skill set – it would have changed the offense. We would have changed the offense. Uh, but if you, what I've always argued is you can't just change the offense for that guy, assuming he's going to win the job, right? You have to let him win the job first. If he wins the offense, then you start to open things up and you you, you change things up. But he didn't win the job, and uh, so I think that's that. To me, that's what kind of what happened there. I and look by the way, Curtis, that scheme also again didn't that same scheme get us within overtime of winning a national championship game. Yeah, and that's the thing in its own right. It was successful. Um, it just didn't work as well when we don't have like the quarterback play and the wide receiver play went down. Yeah, and that's the thing is like that kind of the pro style scheme is dependent upon having superior talent at those various positions, whether it's receiver, running back, offensive line, uh, the whole nine yards. And if you go back and look like 2018, for example, I'm pulling it up here real quick. I'm make sure I'm not. Yes, we were number seven nationally, guys, in yards per play. Number seven nationally in yards per play in 2017. Um, we were even the true freshman quarterback in 2017. We were number 12 nationally in yards per play. Now, 2019 was a disaster, obviously, because we had all those injuries and we lost a lot of guys. Um, and I'm not saying we should have stuck with that scheme. I'm glad we've opened things up. We talked about how offense has become the wave of the future. And it is the present right now, the present and the future. And I'm glad we opened things up. And But you're right. Kirby has made the move. He made it within five years. Okay. He's made the move to bring in a new coordinator that runs a new scheme. It's opened things up, a more modern offense than what we saw the first couple of years here with Jim Chaney and, and James Coley. So I don't want to kill him for that. I know most people do. Um, I'm going to give him a C because I, I do think that we waited a little too long to make that move. I wish we'd done a little quicker, but he has made the move. I also think there's some context, maybe why that move, that evolution didn't happen a little bit earlier. 
uh, in-game decisions. Um, I think that like you're right, Chris. He's a he's a young coach. He had he was a first-time head coach. Had to grow into the position. I'm not going to sit here and say that I agree with everything every decision he's ever made. And you mentioned that even in the um, in the Peach Bowl this year against Cincinnati, punting the ball late in the fourth quarter like that. Mm, I didn't agree with that decision. Even Kirby himself said after the game, like if I had that back, I'd probably go for it there. I probably should have. Um, so there's some, there's some decisions he makes that that uh, I don't always agree with, and I, I don't think he's above reproach. I do not think that at all. But I also think, again, I think he gets killed for like these high profile decisions at times that I don't like. I've never really necessarily had a problem with. Like Curtis, you mentioned the big the big thing he gets killed for in terms of in game decision making, in game coaching is the fake punt in the 2018 SEC title game, right? Did mm-hmm. you like? I know we're rehashing things that happened years ago, but I think that I'm bringing it up because I think that's a big like part in this narrative that he's not a great in-game coach like did you really have that much of an issue with that call because I personally didn't um at least he was playing coaching to win um yes sometimes exactly. I think that can be most frustrating as a fan is when your coach just plays so conservative that he's not going to willing to take that gamble because if it works you're praising him yeah, exactly. I'm I, I'm going to equate it to what just happened this past week with the NFL. You guys know I'm not a big NFL guy, but I watched the playoffs and I watched the Chiefs game uh, against the Browns over the weekend. Curtis, that that ballsy call that everyone has given Andy Reid so much credit for in fourth. Oh, it was a fourth and one, like on the 50 yard line, up by like five or six points, up by less than a touchdown. You give Cleveland the ball back; they have all the momentum. They can go win that football game. He went for it in fourth and one. Not only went for it, but threw the football. Right? Everyone's giving him so much credit for dude. He's being aggressive. What a ballsy call. Curtis, what if that didn't work? What if they lose the game? Yeah, exactly. I mean, realistically, that's what it is. Just like thinking about um, back to when Saban did that onside kick to start the second half years ago against Clemson. Yes. If that yes. didn't work, Clemson recovers it and has a short field scores, changes momentum and things like that. Then they question, you know, why? Why at that point? Like, it's it's always – that's like what I mentioned earlier is it's so easy to judge hindsight. Yep. It just the bottom line is on those kind of those the like borderline 50-50 calls, those that don't really go with the status quo. And that's what you get killed for. If you're going with something that's different than what the status quo is and like what people traditionally do in that situation and it doesn't work, then you get killed like, what are you doing, man? You're an idiot. But if it works, it's like, oh my God, you're a genius, man. Who would have ever done that? But you're right. Like Andy Reid is getting so much credit, he's getting lauded for making that call. And good for him is a great call. Great play. I, I would have done this. I don't. I, I don't know if I would have done the same thing, but it worked, right? And all I'm saying is, Kirby Smart did nothing any different than what Andy Reid did last weekend. He did nothing different than Nick Saban in the national championship game when he went with the onside kick there to open the second half. It just happened to work for those guys, and it didn't work for. Kirby. I mean, okay? you saw it in the Cincinnati game. Everyone's looking at Luke Fickle like that when he called that pass. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that's another great point. I love what Cincinnati did there. I, 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 on one level, you want to run the clock out because we probably wouldn't have had too much. We probably wouldn't have enough time to actually go down there and score. But I'm always in favor of coaches going out there and trying to win football games. Be aggressive and try to win. Now, I, I, you can criticize Kirby for that fake punt call and say, I, I think it's fair to say, well, if you're going to go for it, just line up your offense and go for it. It's a higher percentage play if your offense is out there than if you put a, a, your special teams out there and run a fake punt that you've never actually run in a game. I think that's a fair criticism. Like, the actual choice of play calls there. If you want to go for it, I don't, I just have no issue with him wanting to go for it there because I, he was being aggressive and trying to win a game. It didn't work out. Sometimes it doesn't, but again, all these great coaches get so much credit for being aggressive and, and having you know, these giant balls. Cause they just made this great play and made this great decision. And then Kirby Smart gets killed for doing basically the same thing. 
and it just didn't happen to work out. So I just think that's overstated. Again, I'm not saying he doesn't, he's above reproach and doesn't deserve some criticism, but I think it's a little overstated. And there are things I wish that he could take back or things that he wishes he could take back. But I don't think he's been a disaster as an in-game guy. Is he at Nick Saban level yet? No, because Nick Saban's been coaching for, what, 25, however many years now? And Kirby's still in year five. He's not there yet. But he's getting better, and he's learning, he's growing, and it's only going to get better from here, in my opinion. Um, all right. We spent enough time on that one. Uh, that, that was one I knew we spent a lot of time on. Let's go, uh, let's go to another one that we're probably going to spend a little bit more time on as well, Curtis. Now, this one is kind of Georgia-adjacent. But it's in the news right now, so I don't want to wait till later. So I'm going to go ahead and get this question now. We actually had two questions sent in about the Tennessee programs um, from Sam and Alexander. Um, I can only read one of the questions, so I think this is Alexander's question. I appreciate the question from both you guys. Alexander asked, is Tennessee permanently down? Are they in that category with Nebraska as once great programs that will never get back into championship contention? They've made a bad hire after a bad hire, and things only seem to be getting worse over there. Kurt, I think this is a great question. Like, this is a once proud program, still a proud program. I don't know if they have much to be proud of over the past decade or so. But at this point, are you ready to say that Tennessee is just permanently down? Are they Nebraska where they had this history, but they can never get back to that again? Realistically, Tennessee holds on to that one year, 1998, when they won it all. Um, Peyton Manning really brought them back for the most part, or I don't even know if his back, but brought them to the forefront when he came and, you know, started winning and doing all these things and former comes and wins. But realistically, since that time, I think their fan base has had unrealistic expectations that Tennessee um, is a dream job for a lot of people. And that's not the case. Like, they don't have a strong recruiting base. Uh, they don't always have a rich history. I mean, yeah, they have a big stadium with a passionate fan base, but that's not enough. And the consistent bad coaching hires have taken a toll, um, especially now that you see with Pruitt being gone. Um, it Rumor has it that multiple of their five stars are going to hit the transfer portal, um, like Henry Toa Toa, people, like, people of that sort. And if that is the case, then it puts them even farther behind because realistically now they're claiming that they have, you know, level one infractions and things like that. And so the NCAA is going to come down on them more than likely, even though they self-reported it or whatever the case truly is, it's all very sketchy. But the fact of the matter is, that next coach that takes it is almost in a Penn, Penn State type situation where you're coming in on sanctions, having to rebuild something that has a negative taste and realistically hasn't had a strong basis in the last couple of years. So it's not a quick fix and it is going to be hard to bring them back because while they're struggling with all their other things, you're seeing other teams get even stronger, stronger, like Alabama, Georgia, Clemson. People in the southeast are going to continue to get stronger, which separates, makes the mark, the, you know, the margin or the, the difference between the teams even bigger and bigger to where the point is it's going to be hard for them to overcome and make that to get back on top. Yeah, I agree with everything you said there, man. Um, to me, you guys know, I, I've mentioned this before, though. This is just how my mind works. I'll mention again for some of our newer listeners. I always say like winning at a high level in college football is about three things. It's about talent acquisition, talent development and talent deployment. And I've always told you guys, that I think talent acquisition, having the players is the most important of those three things. They're all important, but I think having the, like the other two, I don't think matter as much if you don't have the players. So I think having the talent is the number one thing you got to have to win. And the problem for Tennessee, I think the core issue for them over the past decade, and Chris, I'm curious if you disagree with me here. The core issue, as far as I see it, is talent acquisition. I think all the, everything else is a symptom of that. It all comes back to their inability to acquire the type of talent that they need over the past decade or so 
to consistently beat Alabama and Georgia and Florida and all those programs. They simply can't get the same players they were getting back in the 90s when they were running the show in the SEC for a couple of years there. They can't get those kind of players right now, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, like, look, guys, Tennessee, if you, if you know anything about high school football in the Southeast, Tennessee is not a very fertile natural recruiting ground. There's not a ton of high-level SEC players in Tennessee. There's a couple every year, every couple of years. There's some guys here and there. In Nashville, that area is growing up a little bit. But as a whole, as a state, there's not a ton of, of true elite football town that state. Not like Georgia, not like Florida, not even like Louisiana, to be honest, in the Southeast. And so what they've always had to do, even back in the 90s when they were on that run with former winning a national title, they always had to rely on recruiting surrounding states. They would go into Louisiana. They would go into Georgia. They would go into South Carolina. They were going to Alabama and get – they would be able to cherry pick the big-time names that they wanted, right? Like Jamal Lewis. People would go in there and cherry pick a guy like Jamal Lewis. And they were able to cherry pick those elite players from surrounding states because – the other sleeping giants in those states were asleep, okay? They were asleep at the wheel. Georgia, Alabama, LSU, even Clemson, who's now become a recruiting power. They were not recruiting at a high level. They weren't performing at a high level. They were down, okay? Let me give you some numbers here, guys. From 1995 to 1998, which I think was the height of the Tennessee run in the mid-1990s, it's culminating with the national championship in 1998. Tennessee from 1995 through 1998, four years there, four seasons, went 45 and five with a national title. Georgia in that same time span, we weren't terrible, but we were not where we are now. We were 30 and 17. We were underachieving. Okay. Alabama, dramatically underachieving. We know what Alabama is now. They weren't that in the mid 90s. They were 29 and 18 from 95 through 98. LSU, 30 and 16 from 95 to 98. Clemson, 25 and 22 from 95 to 98. Tennessee was head and shoulders above performing at a higher level in those programs. And so when the, during that time span, when all those programs around them were down, they could go into Georgia and Alabama and Louisiana and South Carolina and cherry pick who they wanted. But the thing is, the problem for Tennessee is those programs have woken up. Those programs have decided they were they were they were interested in achieving their potential because all those programs have much higher long-term potential and a higher ceiling than Tennessee ever does because of their, their inherent advantages, mainly when it comes to recruiting and also tradition as well, but recruiting fan base, financial support, all those things, even, even campuses like Tennessee's campus guys. I've been to a lot of campuses. Curtis, you've been to Tennessee's campus for football games. That campus is, I mean, is it even a campus? It's ugly. It's, it's not scenic at all. And, and the downtown, to me, it's a depressing place to be. Yeah, the strip is like I, I don't even know how to describe. It's like crack house after crack house on the is what it looks like on the strip. I mean, it's just it's not an, an appetizing place to be. If I'm a high school recruit at the top level guy and I got options, I'm not going to Knoxville, Tennessee. Now I know they have different priorities than I do, but Athens far better. UGA campus far nicer. Alabama, Tuscaloosa far nicer. Uh, even oh Clemson, uh, the town of Clemson kind of sucks, but the campus is much nicer, right? LSU same thing. So we just have these built-in advantages that Tennessee doesn't have. And once we started to capitalize on that, Georgia, Alabama, LSU, Clemson, other programs around them started to capitalize on those advantages, Tennessee was going to have a problem. They're going to have a problem. And they also haven't won an SEC title since 98. They haven't played in the title game since 07. And they, and they snuck in the back door in that one. We were far better than that by the end of the year in 07, although we lost earlier in the year. Um, all, and so 
recruits now, they don't know Tennessee as being this elite program back in the 90s. Those kids weren't alive back then. All the, the highly rated recruits now, all they know is that over the last decade, Tennessee has been 66 and 69 with seven losing seasons. I think over the last 11 years, that's what they know of Tennessee. Okay. They don't know Tennessee. Like they weren't alive when Tennessee won that championship. Now, like, you can say the same thing about us, but at least we've been competitive. Those kids that are recruits, their high school seniors right now were like five or six. The last time Tennessee played an SEC title game, they were too young to even remember that their lifetime. Tennessee hasn't been a factor at all. They've been just on the periphery of college football. And here's what makes it even worse for them. They also, like coaches, under, going back to why they can't, they keep making bad hire after bad hire, here's why. Coaches understand the landscape. They understand that Tennessee has some major disadvantages built in in comparison to the, to the, to the rivals around them. Those coaches also understand that because of that run in the 90s that, that I went over when they were 45 and 5 from 95 to 98, the Tennessee fans are delusional with highly unrealistic expectations. In reality, Tennessee is like a seven and eight, seven to eight win program with like 10 to 11 win expectations each and every year. And if you're a head coach at Tennessee and you win at a realistic level, which is like seven to eight wins on average, and then maybe every now and then you can cycle up and win 10 games and go to the SEC title game like once every five or six years, but you're really about a seven and eight win program. Winning at that level in that at Tennessee will get you fired, but that's the realistic level. In the, uh, the the fan base, their unrealistic expectations, their delusion is part of the problem. So because of that, big-time coaches don't even want to touch Tennessee. So they can't land a big-time established coach, which means they're going to have to hire a group of five head coach like Butch Jones that's had some success or a coordinator that's just a, a complete roll of the dice at the Power 5 level, like a Jeremy Pruitt or a dually, that kind of guy. And those kind of guys, like when you can't get an established head coach that's done it consistently, it's always a roll of the dice. And more often than not, when you roll the dice, it's not going to, it's not going to come up for you, right? It's not going to come up snake eyes. So I'm not going to say it's impossible for them to get back on top, but I do think it will take the perfect hire. They're going to have to nail it with one of those unproven coaches. And the odds are simply that it's just not great that that's going to happen. And even if it does Programs around them have too much of a head start and just too many built-in advantages for them to, I think, ever really can consistently be among the elite. I'm not saying they can't one year here or there cycle up, but I don't think they're going to consistently be an elite program. And I just think Tennessee fans need to understand that that's just who they are and just accept that. All right, Kurt, moving on here. Got time for just a couple more questions. Go a little quicker with these questions here. Uh, Trey asked, if you could pick a position group for our dogs to be deficient in, which group would it be and why? So, Kerr, if there was one position where we had to be, like, maybe not as good as other positions, which position group would it be? Ooh, um, that's a very difficult question because, realistically, do you want to have any position group that's deficient? No. Um, maybe kick return, uh, you know, special <laughs> – like, the return team because, realistically, Fair. almost, like, kick returns have become a thing of the past. Like, even punt returns, for the most part, you don't make a lot of big plays in either of those games. Like – Sometimes they can change the game if you have a big return, but realistically, that's the only part of the game that you really can survive without because you have to have a good kicking game because punting can change field position. Kickoffs, um, you know, really goes along with your place kicking, like your field goals. You have to be able to do that. And especially on the offensive side of the ball and the defensive side of the ball, I don't think you can do it because you saw last year we had a strong, pretty pretty strong offensive line uh, from it's hard to really judge. And we had a good running game with Swift and Harry and people like that but you had a deficient wide receiver and you saw how bad it made your offense. Yeah. Uh, this and is a so tough question. It's really hard to judge that. 
Yeah, it's a tough question. I'm going to try to play Trey's game, though. So I'm going to try to go with a posi- an actual like offensive or defensive position group. And I, and I say deficient. I'm interpreting deficient as maybe like not as physically talented in is what I'm. That's how I'm. I get. That's how I'm going to define deficient. Maybe that's not how Trey intends it to be defined. But that's how I'm going to define it. And I'm going to say the safety position because I think you can get away with having maybe less physically talented guys at safety than maybe at cornerback or really anywhere else on the field. Because really what it's about at safety is just be smart. It's, now, you want to have physically talented guys. You want to have a racial account, that kind of guy, of course. But you can also get away with a Dominic Sanders or a JRE, guys who aren't as like maybe physically gifted, but that are really smart, that don't bust and blow assignments, and they, they can defend against the run. They can, they, can, they can cover a little bit. But like you're just not covering man-on-man as much at safety as you would be if you're at cornerback. You're doing a lot more in run support and that kind of thing. So, of course, I would like to be really talented at all positions, but I think you can get away with being maybe a little less physically gifted and talented at safety than anywhere else in the field. Is that, I mean, are you with me there, Kerr, or am I just kind of like making Yeah, I think that's very fair because I look at Clemson, um, you know, that Turner guy. He's he's not the most athletic guy you see, but he's good because he's smart back there. He's usually in the right position. You saw that, I mean, yeah, Ohio State torched him no matter what, but it was even worse when he wasn't in there that first half. And even like uh, Venable's son, the guy probably wouldn't be starting on a D1 team like that if his dad wasn't the head or defensive coordinator. But in his own right, he's not terrible in that safety position because, like you said, their duties are different. Yeah, so I mean, again, I, I don't, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't love to, I would love to have talent everywhere, and it would not be a great situation, not be super talented from a physical standpoint in at the safety position. But I guess if I had to pick one to play Trey's game here, I think that's what I would go with. I think you can just get away with that. It's more about being smart, not and not blowing assignments, that kind of thing, uh, than it is about you know manning up on a guy one on one, snap it, you know, you know, play in and play out. So I, I guess I would go safety, but. Hesitantly, I think we have time for one more question here, Curtis. All right, we're going to go with um, – we've spent too much time on those first two questions. That's okay. We have plenty of time this offseason to get to all the other questions. Uh, we're going to go with a question from Bob here. This one, won't, I don't think it will take too long. appreciate it, Bob. Bob asks, on a scale of 1 to 10, how worried are you about the secondary next year? Could it be George's Achilles heel? Now, Curtis, this is something we talked a little bit about, but this is an interesting way to look at it. On a scale of 1 to 10, how worried are you about our secondary going, going into 2021? Um, I definitely would say I'm, I'm concerned, uh, especially with the deep, the cornerback position, because as you mentioned, you can kind of, you know, survive if your safeties aren't as ex- good. I mean, you had Lewis seen back there, but I am definitely concerned with our cornerback position, especially when you had play Clemson the first game of the year. And Justin Ross is coming back by the way, which is like, uh, I mean, good for him. I'm glad he's could play football game. It's like, could you not come back game two? Like maybe, I don't know. All right. Give me a number though. One through 10. How, where's your, where's your concern? I'll probably say a six or seven. Oh, okay. You're you, you feel better about it than I do. I am much more concerned. I'm I'm gonna go a four. Um, I like the talent that we have. I don't like the depth situation right now. I do like the talent we have. I like Lewis Seen. I think Chris Smith. I, well, I saw enough from Chris Smith. I think that guy can play that position for us. And do like Curtis honestly, is Chris Smith any different from a physical and a talent standpoint than J.R. Reed and Dominic Sanders? Is he really all that different? No, not at all. I don't. I mean, I don't think so at all. I, in fact, like I, I think he might be more physically talented than Dominic Sanders was. Uh, I think JRE was. You know, I think he was a little underrated in his physical ability. He was just small, but he could move pretty well. 
Um, I think Chris Smith is fine there. We saw enough from him. I, and I like what I saw from him from, in, a, in a run sport standpoint. Did a good enough job covering. Didn't have any major blown assignments. I like what I saw from him. I think we're fine back there. I don't love the depth in this, in, in, as safety right now. But I think we're fine with the starting two of these guys who I would pencil in as the starters. Cornerback, I'm concerned. Uh, I think Healy Ringo is going to be awesome. I think. I mean, I told you guys going back to last year's recruiting class, I thought he, he would end up being potentially the best recruit in that entire class. Not just our class, but like maybe the entire 2020 recruiting class overall in, in the country. Uh, and we didn't get to see much of him. His growth, his development was stunted a little bit with the, with the labrum surgery. But I still think this guy is going to be a superstar for us. Now, do I love the matchup week one against Clemson's offense with DJ Uyunglele and Justin Ross? No, I don't love that. That is concerning. I mean, he's Ringo is going to be awesome, but is he going to be awesome in his first game ever at the college level? I hope so. I, but I don't know. There's an unknown factor there. Jalen Kimmer is a guy that has a, a lot of upside, but is he going to put on enough weight? Because he needs to add some weight. Again, hadn't played a ton. Is can we trust that? Are we going to be able to go get a grad transfer out there? We saw we we liked or just a transfer in general. I like what I saw from Latavius Brini at Star, but it was a very small sample size, uh, and I didn't see enough from him really trying to cover those smaller, shiftier guys. He's going to have to cover from the slot position. That concerns me. I think he's really good in run support, but can he cover those kind of guys like an Amari Rogers from Clemson? I don't know. So I, there is some concern for me. I don't think it's a lost cause. I think we have a lot of talent there. But the coach are going to have to earn their money this year getting those guys ready. And we're going to make a great hire, that secondary hire, to uh, get that unit ready. I'm really hoping that we can land somebody as a transfer here over the next couple of months. But we'll have to see how that, how that, work, how that plays out. And uh, I, I am concerned. i got to be honest here. I'm concerned about that. But all right, guys, that does it for us today here on the Glory UGA podcast. Of course, we have a lot more mailbag questions to get to. Uh, if we didn't get to yours today, I apologize for that. But we have a lot more time this offseason, ton more episodes to get to all these questions. So keep singing them in uh, all offseason long. As soon as a question comes to your mind, send that to us, and we'll make sure to cover it at some point here in the offseason. Just be patient with us, and we'll get to as many questions as we possibly can. But thanks for listening, guys. Hope everyone has an awesome weekend. For Curtis, I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs. <laughs>